I'll be reading from 1 Kings 16, beginning in verse 29. 1 Kings 16, 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And I'll pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much again um, for your, your word and your ministry to us. You've written this, God. You've given it to us for our edification that we might um, profit, Lord. And I pray that we would hear your spirit and, and yield to you, God, and give our amen. And that we would just give you the freedom to work in our lives, God, that you long for. And I pray that we would know you and, and walk with you in the truth. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I just read from the last part of chapter 16, but um, if you're paying attention, you know that this is not where we left off last week. Last week, we left off with King Asa, the good king who died mad at God. And then after Asa, um, the author here of Kings switches the attention from Judah to the south to Israel to the north. So he makes a brief reference to Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa. But then in chapter 15, verse 25, he begins by just giving a, a, a quick list, quick rundown of the kings that lead up to Ahab. And then once we get to Ahab, the rest of 1 Kings is about him. So the first part of 1 Kings was about Solomon. The second half of 1 Kings is about Ahab. And so these kings that are run through, and I often say there's no other place in the Bible like this where we have so many kings in such a short period of time, and that tells us that God is fast-forwarding. He's doing a quick sprint through these kings to get us to Ahab, and then he stops. And so first there's Nadab in 1525. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king, and he only reigned for two years. He did evil, and Basha assassinates him. And so then Basha reigned for 24 years. In chapter 16, a curse is pronounced against him. Verse 6, he dies and his son Elah became king and reigned in his place. Elah also did evil. He only reigned for two years. Verse 8, and then his servant Zimri, verse 9, rose up against him and killed him. So he too is assassinated. And then Zimri only lived for seven days and they put him to death. And so that's verse 15. Uh, and it says, Zimri reigned seven days at Terza. And then after um, Zimri dies, Omri becomes king. Omri will live for, reign for 12 years. During the first six years of that, another man, Timni, decided he was going to be king, verse 21. So they had two kings in the north for six years. And then Timni dies, probably put to death. And then Omri becomes the exclusive king over Israel. And then that brings us to Ahab. So God just ran through these kings, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, Timri, 
to get us to Ahab. Historians will tell you that of these kings, Omri was much more significant <coughs> politically. We have found writings um, of other kings in the area who made mention of Omri, and they, and they spoke of him as being um, a very powerful and influential king at the time. But Ahab, who was not as significant politically, was more significant spiritually. And then God gets all the way up to Ahab and just puts the brakes on and says, now let's just stop and stay here for a while. That says to us, I think, that this attention that God is giving to Ahab tells us that God is more concerned with the spiritual influence of rulers than he is with their political influence. And that's something that's often lost on us as Americans and particularly sometimes I think as American Christians that God is much more concerned with the spiritual influence of leaders than He is the political influence. And you can be a Christian in leadership and not have good Christian influence. You can be an unbeliever in leadership and be used of God to bring about good spiritual influence in a nation. Ahab is a guy who is a rank unbeliever, has no fear of God, and he will turn the nation completely away from God like no other king has. That is significant to God. What is the kind of spiritual influence that a ruler is having? I would think that you could boil that down to the family, and that when it comes to dads in particular, it is much more important when God is measuring your life not the financial provision that you're giving to your family, but the spiritual provision that you're giving to your family. When all is said and done, you're not going to stand before God and God's going to say, you should have earned more money. Unlikely God's going to say that. But he will say, I put you in an influence to have, I put you in a position over your family to have great spiritual influence. And you squandered it. You did not... Work to see your kids turn to the Lord. Ultimately, it's their decision. We get that. But God puts us in positions of influence that we would be spiritual influences for the Lord and not, and not be vessels to see that corrupted as Ahab was. So what do we know about Ahab? Again, very succinct summary of his life here, beginning in verse 29. He reigned for 22 years, verse 30. He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And then verse 31, And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the most wicked king that Israel had, and he considered it nothing to walk in his sins, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Jezebel was from the land of the Phoenicians, her father was a king of, of this area of, of the Sidonians, of Sidon. And she was completely sold out to the devil. This is a woman who worshipped Satan. She wasn't just a worshiper of idols. She knew what she was doing. I read one historian that says that they believed that she was so evil, so corrupted, had so sold her soul to the devil that she could pronounce curses on people and see them drop dead. This is a woman who is a tool of Satan. And a king of Israel has considered it nothing to marry her. 
Pretty amazing. Sometimes I tell our students this would be like if you went home at Christmas and, and your dad says, son, how, how was Bible school? Great, dad. Did you meet anybody? You haven't made, developed any friends? Yeah, dad. In fact, I'm, I'm dating somebody. Really? A girl you met at Bible school? Yeah, well, I met her while I was at Bible school. So what do you mean? Well, she, what, she's not a student. But I met her while I was there. Really? Tell me about her. Well, she's beautiful. Got a great personality. Just don't make her mad. Things, scary things happen, Dad, when you make her mad. What do you, what do you, is this girl a Christian? Oh, no, don't, probably even shouldn't mention Christianity to this girl. What are you telling me? If she's not a Christian, she's a Satan worshiper, Dad. But it's no big deal. She's beautiful. She's got a great personality. Just don't make her mad. It's no big deal. You're bringing home a Satan worshiper. You're dating a Satan. It's, trust me, Dad. See, this is Ahab. Ahab, you can see the deadness of this man's soul. He is so dead toward God, he thinks it nothing to marry a man, a woman like this. Unbelievable. And then it says, verse 32, that he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And now verse 33, Ahab also made the Asherah. Baal and Asherah are generic names for the supreme male and female deities that every culture on the earth had except Israel. See, Israel is alone on this at this time. They were the only ones who said there is one true God. He is neither male nor female. But we recognize him as he reveals himself to us. We refer to him as male. But he does not have a female consort. He does not have a counterpart. He is the one true God. All the other religions believe that there are a multitude of gods, but there was one primary male deity and one primary female deity. And the worship of those deities was absolutely abhorrent. I can't even mention with children in the room what these people were doing. And it has become the national religion of Israel. Under Jezebel's influence, if you worship God, she will have you killed. All the prophets of Israel are being wiped out because of Jezebel's influence. It would be like just taking a country like ours, where we have slowly been moving into decline, and now it seems like it is, it is, it is speeding up. And yet we still have on our currency and God we trust and our law, law enforcement still have on their vehicles and God we trust. And it'd be like, it seems like all of a sudden, wouldn't be all of a sudden, but it seemed like that, all that is gone. And not only is it gone, but instead of saying in God we trust, we put in Satan we trust. That's how radical this is. Israel, God's people, have now totally abandoned him, and the national religion of Israel is Satan, not God. If you turn over in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41, just one section here I want to highlight. We can just get a sense of just how, how awful this is, what they have done in rejecting God. Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, 
whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you and my, with my righteous right hand. And then in chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 4. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. Verse 5. Do not fear, for I am with you. Still in Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no other God formed. There will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who, who can reverse it? I could go on. Isaiah writes those words after Ahab. And he's writing, as I, I believe is to, as I recall correctly, to Judah. Israel has become a lost cause, largely because of the influence of Ahab. But we read those verses from Isaiah, and you can sense how magnitude this is, how, how monumental this is that they have turned from God who loves them and has called them and is their Savior and their Redeemer to one who cannot save. It is beyond tragic. In this context... Elijah comes out of nowhere. Chapter 17 of 1 Kings. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Where did this come from? What we don't realize about this time is that in the midst of this great confusion and turning from God, evil that's running rampant in this nation, believers that are being put to death for their faith, there is another theological crisis going on. It's not just a crisis of what's happening politically and circumstantially, but there is a true biblical theological crisis going on. And Elijah is in the middle of it. And Elijah sees it. John, if you'll put that slide up on the board, on the screen, don't even know what it is. PowerPoint. Amazing. Say, so don't have heart attacks. This doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Here's the crisis that 
Elijah would have been very much aware of, a theological conundrum. And what I have up here, starting with the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant consists of primarily three promises. God promised Abraham that he would give him a seed, God promised him land, and God promised him to make him a great blessing. And from those three promises come three more covenants. The seed, the Davidic covenant, the land, what we call the Palestinian covenant, and the blessing, the new covenant. Now, all four of these covenants are for Israel. They are not for Gentiles. They are for the Jewish people. We have been brought into, made participants with Israel, part, been brought into the commonwealth of Israel, Ephesians 2 says, when it comes to the new covenant. We are not Israel, just like Canada is not Great Britain. But Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they are part of the commonwealth of Great Britain. And so they get to participate in the commonwealth of England. Whatever that used to be, it's not what it is today, but it used to be much greater than it is today. So being part of the commonwealth did not make you England. It just made you a participant in those blessings. And the church has been brought into the blessing of the new covenant. But, we, but the covenant was not made with us. The Davidic covenant was not made with us. And the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant, all of these are made with Israel. Now we've got a fairly good grasp as Christians on the Davidic covenant. God said to David that he would have a son that who would never cease to reign from his throne. And then we have the new covenant, which we commemorate every time we have communion. But the one that we never talk about and have very little understanding about is the Palestinian covenant. And it's principally revealed to us in Deuteronomy 28. So if you would, just go over there quickly to Deuteronomy 28, and you can begin to see what this theological conundrum crisis is that Elijah is living in the midst of. Deuteronomy 28. It starts out with blessings. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be, be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast and the increase of your, of your young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Now you can see God's just saying to Israel, this is not... Um, Prosperity theology, but God, his unique people, Israel, that he is in a covenant relationship with, has said, if you obey me, I will bless your socks off. Loose translation. Okay. Now, if they turn away from him, the opposite. I will curse you. Verse 15. Now it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall you be in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the city and in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body. And then let's go down here to verse 21. 
The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew and they shall pursue you until, they, until you perish. And now the key, verse 23. And the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust from heaven. It shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Has Israel turned away from God? Under the days of, in the days of Ahab, has Israel disobeyed God, rejected God, turned to the idols? Yes. But are the curses being fulfilled? No. And that is the theological crisis for Elijah. I wonder if Elijah is sitting back in the hills of Gilead. And by the way, what does it mean, Elijah the Tishbite from the settlers of Gilead? Nothing. It means nothing. It'd be like saying Charlie from Comfort. You're going, what does that mean? Nothing. So Elijah is a nobody from nowhere. But he's a man, as we're going to see, who is prepared to believe what God has said. And in this crazy time, where it looks as though evil is just running crazy and there's nobody to stand against it and God's just letting it go and we don't know why God's letting it go, this man comes out of nowhere. Nobody from nowhere. I wonder, using my, what I hope is sanctified imagination, if Elijah was sitting back in the hills of Gilead, just reading his newspaper, and all these stories about the prophets that are being killed, children that are being ripped away from their families, religious places that are being torn down, the altars of God that are being destroyed, and he just can't take it anymore. Folds up his newspaper, said, I just got to get my Bible out. And he reads from his Bible, and his eyes come to Deuteronomy 28. If my people turn away from me and worship other gods, it shall not rain. That's what it's saying in Deuteronomy 28. And then right at that time, cloud bursts. Rain comes down. Oh my! Gets his umbrella out and he's going, God, is this a joke? If there is ever a time when your people have turned away to idols, where they are disobeyed you, now is the time and it's still raining. And yet Deuteronomy 28 says it shall not rain. What gives? I wonder if he didn't close up his Bible and get out his newspaper again. And maybe his eyes fell on a little article in the back of the newspaper that he hadn't seen before. And which I failed to read when I opened up with the scripture reading this morning, verse 34 of chapter 16. Look at this little story. In his days, his being Ahab, in the days of Hiel, the Bethelite built Jericho. What has that got to do with anything? Keep reading. He laid its foundation with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn. He set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And then the next word, now. Elijah, the Tishbite, of the settlers of Gilead, stands before Ahab and says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. There's some connection here. In other words, the newspapers are never going to tell you all that God is doing. Because nobody knows all that God's doing. All we can see is all the evil that's taken place. In the midst of the most 
evil days that Israel's ever seen at that same exact time. God has fulfilled the prophecy that Joshua put in place. Where Joshua pronounced a curse on the city of Jericho after they had burned it to the ground. And he cursed it and said, if anyone ever rebuilds this city, he's going to start the construction process and his youngest son's, his oldest son's going to die. And when he finishes the construction project, project, his youngest son will die. For 530 years, nobody touched Jericho. And it just happens, and there's no just happens with God. But it appears to just happen that at the exact time that Ahab is going unrestrained with his evil, and it looks as though this prophecy, this covenant that God has with Israel, Deuteronomy 28, is going ignored by God. At the same time, Hiel rebuilds Jericho, and yes, his oldest and youngest sons die. I can't prove it, but it seems to me that probably is one of the most insignificant prophecies, if not the most insignificant prophecy in all the Bible. Because it pertains to one man and his two boys. And that's it. So here's the deal. I wonder if Elijah looks at that and goes, you know, if at this time God is fulfilling the most insignificant promise in Scripture, is he truly ignoring a covenant that he has made with the nation? And I think Elijah is going, what gives God? How come you would, you would fulfill that insignificant prophecy about Jericho, but not fulfill Deuteronomy 28? And this is where God speaks to our hearts when we ask questions like this. And I wonder if God said to him, I'm prepared to fulfill my word, but I am always looking for that man, woman, boy, or girl who will believe me and take me at my word. Elijah goes, I'm that man. Elijah has never seen a miracle. In his entire life, there has not been a single miracle. But he knows what God's word has said. And he knows what just happened down in Jericho. And he's going to face the most evil, powerful man around who is killing people for saying what he says when he walks up to him, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. That's where the spears come out, the swords get drawn, and Elijah is bold and fearless because he is standing on what God said. As we get further into the life of Elijah, we'll see more about Elijah and how he prays and how he trusts God and obeys God but one thing that is very clear, James says he is a righteous man who prayed effectively and it did not rain and he was a man with a nature just like ours and we can expect the same from our God. But here what we, what we can't miss, and it's so obvious, it's easy to miss it. When Elijah prayed that it would not rain, he is praying according to Scripture. He could have quoted the verse from the Old Testament. He didn't come up with this. He is simply quoting what God said and said, I believe it and I know it'll be true. 
And that's all God was looking for, was one man who would stand on the truth of what God said and, and act in faith. What does God want for Israel? This is a hard book to find in your Bible, but Amos in chapter 4, and I have highlighted this repetition in Amos 4, and then in chapter 5. Amos chapter 4, verse 8. Again, these prophets are all writing to a disobedient people, and so we can see what God's message is to Israel and to any who disobey God. Verse 8. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew. Didn't we read about mildew in Deuteronomy 28? See, these are the curses of Deuteronomy 28. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring, and many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with the captive, your captured horses. I made the stench of your camp rise in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. The one thing God is looking for his covenant people Israel to do is to return to him. This is still in effect today. The Davidic covenant is still in effect today. The new covenant is still in effect today. And so is the Palestinian covenant. You want to understand what's going on in the world as it relates to Israel today? You've got to understand Deuteronomy 28. What's happening in Israel is evil. And I believe they have every right as a people and as a nation to oppose in the strongest way possible what is happening to them. But according to Deuteronomy 28, unless his people return to him, they can only expect it to continue. And it breaks my heart because I love the people of Israel. And I don't want to see this continue. But as a church, as a body of Christ who are committed to the people of Israel, knowing they are the covenant people of God, we should pray not only for their protection and their victory over evil, but we should, because what God is after is what we should pray. And just as Elijah prayed according to Scripture, we are praying according to, the script, to Scripture when we say, God, may your people return to you in the midst of this. What did John the Baptist come preaching? Repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Jesus come preaching? Repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message for Israel. Repent. Repent. In the next chapter of Amos chapter 5, verse 4, Seek me 
that you may live. Verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. This is what God is after. You have not returned. Repent. Seek me that you may live. I don't believe that Israel as a nation comes to faith in Christ until the tribulation events. I believe that in praying for the peace of Jerusalem, as Psalm 122 exhorts us to do, that we are ultimately praying for their salvation, not just that Israel be at peace, but they know the Prince of Peace, and they have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And even though Israel as a nation has said will not come to faith until the great tribulation events, we know that even prior to that, God wants them to return to him. Even if they don't come to faith in Christ, is what I'm getting at, they can still repent before God, return to God, and know God and his blessing. How bad... Will God allow it to get? We don't know. But what does it take for things to turn around? As little as one man, one man, who will stand on the truth of God's word. And as God empowers and God inspires, take as public of a stance as God would have, even if it means confronting the king personally. For the rest of us, United States, how far will God let it go? I don't know. But when I read the Bible and see how far at times God let things go, it tells me it could get much, much worse. There's one account where the, king, where the city of Samaria comes under siege. And the siege is so bad, the famine is so bad, that men and women um, have turned to cannibalism. Couldn't be any worse. And it wasn't until that time that God finally brought about deliverance through, through, through three lepers who were outside the city gates. We don't know how far it can go, but we do know what the will of God is. That a people, they don't even have to be Christian people. They don't have to be saved, though that is what God is ultimately after. But even unbelievers can recognize that there is a God and we are at war with him. Even an unbeliever can say, I have lived my life not fearing God. And a nation can wake up and say, God save us. It has happened many times in the course of history. Where the nation did not all come to Jesus, but a nation did turn back to God. And ask for his forgiveness and for his gracious blessing. God, verse 33, my last point, and Ahab 
also provoked Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So in that last sentence there, verse 33, two things. God can be provoked. And that is a scary thing. That God can be provoked. The second point is that God remains the Lord God of Israel even when he has been rejected by Israel. Baal is their current God in practice. But God says, you may have rejected me. I have not rejected you. He is still the Lord God of Israel. God will always be the God of Israel, even when he isn't Israel's God. And we know the same is true for you and I. If the people of Israel, regardless of all that they did, God never broke covenant with them. And they rejected him. They turned away from him. They made Baal their God. And yet God says, I am the Lord God of Israel. I have not rejected you. If that's true of Israel, isn't that true for you and I? Who have been brought into a covenant relationship with him through the blood of Jesus Christ? who has purchased us with his own blood, who has canceled their certificate of debt against us, who has adopted us as his own. If this is true of Israel, then it's also true for you and I. That we could be so far from God, even as Christians, that we would say, he's not even my God. And yet God is still for us. We are still his And he is ours. He will not reject us, even should we reject him. I'll close this in prayer. God, we never want to live in a time when evil men are triumphing. And yet it seems to be the days, God, that we are at least entering in if we're not in them already. I pray, God, that you would sustain our faith, that your word, God, would live within us, that we would be hungry and thirsty, God, for your word and for righteousness, and that we would believe you, God, and not just the media accounts, but that your word would be the ultimate and final authority, and that we would be bold and strong, God, in standing on the truth of what you've said, whatever it might be. And we do pray, God, that you would use us in this world to see righteousness triumph, to see truth prevail, and to see the hearts of men and women turn back to the fear of God, which is the first step. Ultimately, we want to see them come to faith in Christ, But God, we would recognize that typically the first thing that has to happen is people have to fear you. And we pray that your spirit would strongly move across this world, God, to renew a fear of God. And that through that, that many would come to faith in Christ. 
In Jesus' name, amen.